You're listening to Making Global Learning Universal, conversations about engaging diverse perspectives, collaboration, and complex problem solving in higher education, on campus, online, in local communities, and abroad. I'm your host, Stephanie Dosher, Director of Global Learning Initiatives at Florida International University and co-author of Making Global Learning Universal, Promoting Inclusion and Success for All. And so intercultural competence, while it sounds like either something that you have or you don't, I really see it very much as a developmental continuum. And so when I talk about intercultural development, intercultural learning, that's really the process of developing one's intercultural competence. That was Tara Harvey, founder of True North Intercultural, a consultancy that provides training, tools, and support to empower educators to facilitate intercultural learning at home and abroad. A few months back, Tara reached out to me after listening to a few episodes of the podcast. She let me know that she heard similarities between how she thinks about intercultural learning and how we were talking about the process of global learning. This was really intriguing, so we decided to schedule a conversation and record it for season two. What you're about to hear is that conversation, our attempt to understand and articulate the relationship between intercultural and global learning, and to discover ways educators can employ both to develop their students' global awareness, perspective, and engagement. Don't forget to check out the show notes and discussion guide on our website so that you can continue this conversation on your campus. Now here's Tara. So Tara, I have been really looking forward to this dialogue because it's going to be a, a truly a dialogue, less of an interview of me asking you to report than really a conversation that you prompted for me, which was to work out what's the relationship between interculturalism, intercultural learning, intercultural communication, intercultural competencies, and, and global learning. Um, I'm really curious about that, and you expressed to me <laughs> via email that you're curious too. Um, and, and folks who have been listening to the podcast have a, a sense of how, you know, my take on defining global learning, but maybe we, we could begin with your take on interculturalism? Because there are all these terms that we see in the media, in journals, and I don't really know the difference. (laughs) Sure, sure. Well, thanks for having me, first of all. Um, I don't use the term global learning a lot, so that's part of the reason I reached out to you and said, well, what exactly do you mean when you use that term? I talk a lot about intercultural learning, intercultural competence, intercultural development. And I use those kind of interchangeably because for me, intercultural competence is about your ability to communicate and engage effectively and appropriately across cultural differences. So effectively meaning you achieve whatever the objectives are, appropriately, meaning you do that in a way where all of the parties involved feel respected, appreciated, and valued. And so intercultural competence, while it sounds like either something that you have or you don't, I really see it very much as a developmental continuum. 
And so when I talk about intercultural development, intercultural learning, that's really the process of developing one's intercultural competence. So I was looking at your definition of, of global learning and the big thing that jumps out to me as being different is that intercultural learning has more of an internal focus. Like a big part of it is understanding yourself and how you make sense of and experience the world. And I think that's really critical to be good at global learning. Like if you want to solve the world's big problems, you need to understand that you're coming at those problems with your own lens, with your own experience. And that's impacting how you see those issues, how you feel about those issues, as well as what you come up with as solutions. That is, okay, so that's really interesting to me because when I'm thinking about some of the theoretical bases of our definition of global learning in that it's this process of diverse people, which implies diverse perspectives, I go back to Robert Hanvey. And I'll connect to his kind of seminal article, An Attainable Global Perspective, in the show notes. But he has this concept of perspective consciousness. And Hanvey is often acknowledged as like the grandfather of global education, right? So he had these five aspects of a, of, of a global perspective. And one of them had to do with like state of the planet awareness. So a, a real understanding of the world's interconnectivity and of global issues, but he rooted it in perspective consciousness, the concept that I have a unique view of the world and others have views of the world themselves. Mm-hmm. And, and so when we think of a global perspective within the concept or the framework of global learning, we think of it as a collective process, right? Like, like I hold a piece of the puzzle or that, that old aphorism or that story about the, you know, the blind people trying to touch, trying to talk about what does an elephant look like and everybody's, yeah. yeah. So, so, so we can't really have a global perspective in our, in ourselves, it's, it's that interaction piece. So, so it makes a lot of sense to me what you're saying. So, but, but, but <laughs> there's always a but. <laughs> How do you develop perspective consciousness? How do you develop the intercultural communication skills? So that's, I would love to dig into that with you. What's that process look like? Right. And for me, I assumed when I read your definition and when I've listened to other podcasts that that perspective piece was a part of it. I think it's just made a little bit more explicit in the intercultural, at least through my approach in the intercultural, because just because we might be in a room full of diverse perspectives doesn't mean we've all really come into awareness and understood our own perspective. And that is an an ongoing process as well. I, I see and experience the world in a unique way every, every day, but am I going, oh, this is just how I'm experiencing the world. This is my perspective. This other individual I'm interacting with may see and experience this in a very different way. So beyond having the 
unique perspective. It's also understanding that that is one perspective and that other people could have um, equally valid views and perspectives and experiences of whatever is going on. And so when you talk about how to develop that, I, I rely heavily on two different frameworks when I think about intercultural learning. One is the intercultural development continuum, which is um, related to the intercultural development inventory, Mitch Hammer and originally uh, Milton Bennett influenced the developmental model of intercultural sensitivity that led to the intercultural development inventory, the intercultural development continuum. And that's really a continuum that looks at the complexity with which we experience cultural difference. Um, so for me, it's all about enhancing or increasing the complexity with which you experience cultural difference, not just others' ways of experiencing the world, but seeing the way you experience the world in a more enhanced, complex way. Like, how is my own background? How is my whiteness? How is my privilege? How are all of these layers of my identity impacting the way I am in this moment and interacting with this situation? So the intercultural development continuum for me is kind of the, the process or the continuum of development. And then the other framework I rely on heavily is comes originally from Mick Vandenberg, and then he and I have worked on it a bit since then. And right now, what we call it is the four-phase developmental framework for intercultural learning. And it's, it's really about these four different phases or competencies that we need to develop to become more interculturally competent. And the first is um, understanding or having more awareness around how we're making meaning of the world, how we're experiencing things. The second then is understanding and being more aware of how others might experience the world differently from us. So a lot of intercultural communication concepts and theories can help us understand in a deeper way how other people might see and experience the world in a non-judgmental way, at least at first. And then the third is responding mindfully in contexts that disorient and challenge us. Because um, our, our knee-jerk reaction usually is to respond on autopilot based on our own ways of making meaning without even making those explicit to ourselves. So we really need to slow down become more aware of how we're making meaning and then act in more intentional ways. Um, so that's the third phase. And the fourth is to bridge cultural differences, to bridge the gaps between us and others that we're interacting with. So shifting our perspective, attuning our emotions um, and adapting our behavior so that we're more effective and appropriate in those situations. So I think of those two frameworks kind of in tandem of how we can continuously develop our own intercultural competence and others. So I have a question, and this gets back to the, this relationship between global learning and intercultural learning. Mm -hmm. So when you started, you were talking about how intercultural learning is more explicitly within the individual, right? It involves kind of this metacognition. It involves our, our, our 
a perspective consciousness. Do I? Do and I, I don't mean it's just that, but yeah. I, I see more of an element of that in intercultural learning than global learning. It goes beyond that, but it needs to start there. Right. So that beyond that piece is is what I'm curious about. So, I mean, can we engage in intercultural learning in the absence of global learning? Um, I think it, to a certain extent, some intercultural learning needs to be a precursor to global learning because global learning to me aligns a lot with that bridging cultural gaps. It's like, okay, how do we now come up with um, solutions that are going to be culturally appropriate and effective? Well, if we don't even know first that we're experiencing the world in a certain way and it's impacting the solutions we could come up with, we don't we're not going to be as effective working in a diverse team with people with different perspectives. So to me, I think, yeah, some intercultural learning can occur without the global learning. I don't think you're going to get very far focusing on global learning if you're not working with people who have done some intercultural work already. Yeah. And well, it does make a lot of sense. And it also comports with our research. So, well, that's nice. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so we use the Global Perspective Inventory. We've been using it for okay. 10, 10 years at, at the institution. And we chose it because um, the items really do correlate best of all of the instruments that we could find that were also that were practicable for us. And the underlying theoretical framework correlated best with how we define global learning and how and the requirements for how we design a global learning course. So we've been uh, administering the GPI for 10 years, and we've been giving it to minimum 10% samples of incoming freshmen transfers and graduating seniors. And what we see consistently with tens of thousands of data points now, is that one is not enough. So one global learning course tends to kind of bring to awareness the fact that there are different perspectives. That's not necessarily an opportunity to begin digging deeper into my own perspective, but just, oh, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. There's, there are other ways of seeing the world here, right? Mm -hmm. So it's just the beginning of understanding the knowledge of what a perspective is and that there are different perspectives. But we have to start there before we can then go into that deeper space of developing our intercultural competence and engaging in more intercultural learning. So I think it's really interesting because it's, it's almost like a chicken egg situation, right? <laughs> yeah. Sometimes one and and we have found this also in our research. This was this was the finding that we had in in my dissertation that if a student comes into a course with just that knowledge that I have a perspective and there and other people have perspectives. They may not know anything deeper than that. Just that there are different ways of seeing the world. Mm -hmm. Then that one global learning course can take them to a significantly higher level of 
um, analysis and, and introspection than the student who enters the same course and gets the same treatment, if you will, without that basic knowledge, right? So we have to enter with at least that idea. And some of our students come to our universities as freshmen based on their experiences in life, and they already have that sense. And some of them come as freshmen or as transfer students, and they still, they don't have that yet. That's what college is for, like dumping you into this situation where there's so many different Mm -hmm. people and so many different perspectives. So yeah, I should stop talking. <laughs> Those are some of the things that you're saying that remind me of the research that we've, the yeah, findings. Yeah, and I think we can definitely go about both of these things in tandem. Um, you know, we don't have to say, are we doing intercultural or are we doing global? But we can really think about, okay, how can we make sure to bring the two together? Right, it's a both and piece. So, exactly. So, Tara, you're not... Are you affiliated with an institution? Do you, you, you have a consultancy? Let, share with me more about how you go about doing this work around sure. intercultural learning. So in 2016, I started my own company called True North Intercultural. Um, I'd been with institutions in the past as well as a not-for-profit study abroad provider. So always in international education. And I was just really interested in and focused on how do we help make those international or intercultural experiences more um, how do we maximize the learning in those experiences for students? And so I ended up going back for a PhD and really focused on that and had a lot of opportunity to um, engage with courses and other programs, design curriculum, facilitate uh, training and teach courses uh, focused on how to develop intercultural learning through international and intercultural experiences. So that's what my passion is. And my last position was with an organization called CIEE, the Council on International Education Exchange. I think you and I might have met when I was still with CIEE. I was the academic director of intercultural learning. So I was designing the intercultural curriculum for the study abroad programs around the world, like our intercultural curriculum that would focus on this, that would focus on how do we facilitate students' intercultural learning while they're having an intercultural experience. And part of, through that process, part of what I really came to see at a deeper level is that an intercultural curriculum is very good and very helpful, but a big piece of it is how it's facilitated. This isn't just a knowledge transfer issue. This is really about facilitating our students' intercultural learning journey. And I also saw that the intercultural competence of the facilitators really impacted how they went about doing that, how comfortable they were, how they pushed students, the types of conversations they were able to get into. And so for me, training became a really big piece, training and coaching the resident staff that we had around the world in how do you facilitate this kind of learning? And how do you as an educator develop your own intercultural competence so you're more effective at doing that? So when I was doing that with CIEE, I was approached by a lot of universities and institutions asking me if I could provide the kind of training that I was doing internally for their organizations. And I saw a really deep need for that 
very few places at the time had anything that resembled an intercultural specialist still today, you know, your Purdue, University of Minnesota, FIU, those types of institutions might have someone like that, but most places don't. And so through True North Intercultural, my mission, my goal is really to empower educators to foster transformative intercultural learning. So through workshops at universities, as well as online, uh, longer, more in-depth programs, I help educators develop their own intercultural competence and learn how to integrate intercultural learning into their courses, their study abroad programs, any type of work that they're doing with students. And always a big part of that is focus on themselves. Where did the name True North come from? (laughs) I'm curious about that. Oh, well, that was a long process of trying to figure out what felt right. But for me, I think it comes down to the fact that intercultural learning is not just about learning how to interact with somebody from a different country or culture. It's really about self-development and growing as a human being and becoming a better um a better person in the world. Oh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm such a crier. No, no, I'm the crier. And I can't, I mean, the number of times that I cried in the middle of interviews <laughs> with in season one, I, I'm delighted. Keep going, babe. Okay. So yeah, I cry at everything. But <laughs> so true North intercultural for me is really about like, how do you become your best self? Mm -hmm. How do you become more authentically yourself while also engaging in a world where you can respect and appreciate all the difference that exists? Beautiful. Um, You know, I I will say about the crying that, you know, I come from a theater background. And um, when we were in training, and especially in vocal training, that moment when we begin to cry, my teachers would always say, like, lean into that, lean into that, lean into that. Because that's, you're hitting on the, the deepest thing that you want to communicate. And, and, the, and the moment that I started to see your eyes water and your face get flush, and I thought, oh, it's coming, she's gonna cry. <laughs> was when you were saying becoming your best self, right? So, mm-hmm. so, that, so I want to ask you about your own personal journey a little bit there because mm-hmm. I'm curious, like, what, what was that like for you? I think if it, it would be helpful for listeners to hear your own experience of, de- of developing that mission. We might connect with that. So developing the mission of True North? Yeah, yeah. Like your your own per, your own journey mm-hmm. as an individual from you know, maybe you can begin. I was a I was a little girl <laughs> born at no. You can begin wherever you want, but yeah. But yeah. how did you come to be in this place in your life and in the world? Yeah. Well, I really wouldn't have guessed it when I was young because I. Grew up in Minnesota. I mean, my my mother still lives in the house that they purchased when they were pregnant with me. So same place, you know, for my whole um, childhood growing up. 
relatively privileged, relatively white area. I wasn't exposed to a ton of difference. Although doing the, the self-reflective work now in this field older, I start to realize and see um, some of the ways that I was exposed to difference and it did impact me even though I didn't quite realize it at the time. Um, but I just somehow got it in my head in middle school, I think. I was like, I'm, I'm going abroad one day, so I gotta, get, I gotta get fluent in another language and I gotta go abroad to do that. My options were limited. Um, I could choose between Spanish and German, so I chose Spanish and then junior year of college and I was I was first generation college. My parents hadn't hadn't gone to college. They weren't very familiar with study abroad. But I walked into the office, the study abroad office at Northwestern University, and I was like, "I'm going abroad. I speak Spanish. Give me information." <laughs> and they said, "We have a junior year abroad in Sevilla, Spain." I was like, "Great. Give me the application." I filled it out turned it in and I spent junior year in Sevilla, Spain. Um, and that is where I met my now spouse. Um, so I spent a year in Sevilla because I had met him. I ended up getting a TEFL certificate to teach English as a foreign language. And I went back, I moved to Madrid um, after college and taught English there for a couple years. And that's when I kind of realized that international education was a field. Um, so when we decided to move to the US, I applied for jobs in the international education field and became an international student advisor. And that was, in addition to living in Spain, that was just a huge learning opportunity for me. You know, you would be advising a student one minute who you were telling them like why they couldn't get a visa for their same sex spouse. And then the next minute you would have a student coming in um, where the husband was speaking for his wife. Um, so, you know, it was like intercultural 101 throughout the entire day. Um, so that was a great opportunity for me to learn and grow. But also I just saw the great intercultural learning opportunities for everyone on our campus that were available because we had international students. Um, and they weren't necessarily being taken advantage of. So with a colleague at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, while I was an international student advisor there, we started uh, training for faculty and staff. And this was oh, like back in 2004 or five on how to work more effectively with international students. And it was really an intercultural training. And my, my coworker is Hmong, and so she and I sat down together ahead of time and had a conversation about like, what is our cultural background? What are our learning preferences? How is that going to impact us as trainers, as a duo? Um, and so I learned a lot through that process and just started to see the value of helping everyone think about how they could use these experiences to um, learn and grow and work more effectively with people from different cultural backgrounds. But, and it must also, because I can see that, you know, this is an emotion in recollecting, <laughs> in recalling that experience working with your partner, your Hmong partner, you know, I can see that there's emotion rising again. So I think this is getting into the space that might differentiate global 
learning a little bit more from intercultural learning in the way that you're talking about. Because like when you remember that experience working with your Hmong partner and you were exchanging information about yourselves in order to work, you like you had another goal. What was that bringing up for you? Did you come to like personal realizations or like how did that impact you? I mean, all of the intercultural experiences I've had over time have just helped me realize like that I do carry a cultural lens and I experience the world in my own unique way and that I cannot assume that others um, see or experience the world in the same way. Yeah. But that their experience is just as valid and just as important um, and something that I can learn from um, yeah. that can make me a better person. And and when you say a better person, like, do, do you think that better part is about doing better in the world or better meaning feeling better? our ability to connect with people that we may not otherwise have had access to like that feeling of to make, to make a friend, to make a, to make a, 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 a co like a fellow traveler. Mm-hmm. I think both. I mean, what prompts you to do better and be better in the world is like connecting with people on a deeper level. And the more we connect on a deep level with people who are, different from us, the more we kind of expand our experience of the world and, and how we want to impact it. And even discover our own superpowers in a way. Right. Yeah. Like I did not understand my approach to learning and my approach to facilitating until I talked to somebody who had a very different approach to those things. And I went, oh, And what that made me realize, too, is that we're going to be in a room with learners, and I can't assume that they're all learning like I would prefer to learn. So just hearing my co-facilitator's preferred way of learning expanded my understanding of how the learners in the room might be approaching our training and made me a better trainer because I could adapt to more different styles of learning. Oh, yeah. So, right. So there's that little piece of global learning there too, right? So so it's it's that dance between these two spaces, right? Because being in having seeing oneself reflected in the eyes of others mm-hmm. or in compare it not comparison in a judgmental way, but but um but side by side, right? Because because what I'm not hearing you say I'm not hearing you say like, well, that person was doing it better or I was doing it better. It's just that this is a way to do it and this is a way to do it, right? We're going to put these two things side by side and we're going to let the, we're going to let the, the, the tension between them exist and, and, we're going to, and we're going to kind of reach across going back to that theoretical framework, yeah, and this goes back to the the framework that I mentioned that originated from Mick Vandenberg. So the two, the work that he and I have been doing to evolve that um, framework is, and this is really going to be really hard to share on a podcast, but to kind of look at 
how those four phases are in relation to each other. So we see the first two competencies, which are increasing your understanding and awareness of how you make meaning, and then increasing your understanding and awareness of how others make meaning. We see those as core and fundamental and very much like in back and forth relationship with one another. The more you understand how someone else sees the world, the better you understand how you see and experience mm -hmm. the world. And the more you dig into realizing like your experience of the world is just one unique perspective, the more you can appreciate other people's perspectives. So those are at the core and they're really back and forth. And you have to have those um, at least start to learn in those ways before you can expand out to responding mindfully and then to bridging cultural gaps. So it kind of starts with those two at the core and then moves out. Now, uh, the piece about not judging or just seeing someone else as different, one of the, the important um, aspects of intercultural learning is the goal is not to just say, oh, everything is, is okay. It's cultural and therefore I have to accept every different way of being in the world. Intercultural competence involves adapting in a way that's going to be effective and appropriate while still remaining authentic to yourself. Mm. So you have to learn how to identify really your core values, your core ethics, and adapt in a way where you're not giving those things up. Okay. So you, you're not necessarily just saying, oh, because it's cultural it, and different, I have to accept it. If you wanted to change something, and this is this starts to connect really with the global learning. Like if there were something, I oftentimes use the example of female circumcision because it's so extreme. If yeah. you wanted to change something like that, you're not going to do it by going in and waving your flag and telling all the reasons why you think it's bad and should be changed. You really need to deeply understand from multiple perspectives of people um, in that particular culture like why this is happening if you want to make change in a way that's going to be effective and appropriate. So it's not saying, oh, that's cultural, so I guess we have to accept it. But if it's something that you really want to change, you need to do try to do so in a way that's interculturally competent or you're not going to be effective. Okay. So now my question is, how do we build, what does it look like when you are working with faculty who want to, the change they want to make is, is mm -hmm. that they want to help to develop their students into cultural competence, right? What does it look like when you're working with faculty? What's that process to kind of engage in intercultural learning? What, what is that all about? Mm -hmm. So the first thing is I teach faculty this four phase developmental process. Um, and then we focus on it really in three different ways. I, I focus on what I call the no, grow, so method. No reflects knowledge. They need to understand intercultural concepts, theories, and ideas. Um, this is a field. Intercultural communication is a field. There are a lot of concepts that can really help you understand cultural difference in a less judgmental way. Like if somebody is late for a meeting, we often immediately go to lazy, disrespectful, whatever. There are 
frameworks that can help you understand that people have different relationships to time and talk about that in a non-judgmental way as opposed to just having that judgmental language that we automatically go to. So first of all, building knowledge and understanding. The second is growth. So focusing on educators' own intercultural growth and understanding. And then the third part, so, S-O-W, is really how do we sow the seeds of intercultural learning in others? How do we facilitate others' intercultural learning? Um, we focus a lot on pedagogy, and then how do you use that pedagogy to design effective intercultural learning and facilitate intercultural learning? So I'm focused on all three of those areas in most of my programs, especially the, the ongoing in-depth programs and using that four-phase developmental framework. So we'll do something, and I say focus on this as a learner. You're developing your knowledge around certain concepts and ideas. You're also growing as an individual by doing this activity. Whatever it is we're doing is something that's meant to get them to think, to reflect, to understand themselves and others better. So we do the activity, and that contributes to their own knowledge and their own growth. And then I always create space to do more of an educator debrief. Like, okay, now let's think about which of those four phases does an activity like this help develop? So how might you use it in the work that you do with students? If it's focused on bridging, for example, that activity, and you're doing a one hour pre-departure orientation with students before they go abroad, that's probably not the right activity or the right thing to do. So it's very practical in, okay, now that you focused on your knowledge and, and growth, like how would you actually use this? How would you actually implement? Okay. So what kind of, well, I have two questions. So one is like, what kind of a time commitment, right? Because earlier we were saying, like one course is not enough for students. So can can a, a faculty member like really go through this transformative experience and be able to facilitate that for others in a day, two days, four weeks? Like what does that look like? Um, I don't think a day, something like that is going to transform, like make someone a more interculturally developed human being. I think a day can increase their awareness and interest in going down that route. So I always talk to universities about that. If they want to bring me in and do a, a full day workshop, great, we can do that. But you need to understand that the, the goal or the learning outcome of that is really awareness of what intercultural learning is, why it's important. Um, and that's why I've developed longer programs like my signature program right now called facilitating intercultural learning is three months long oh wow. and it's it's focused on all of these areas um and it's online training but also small group coaching everyone takes the idi gets their individual uh results through a one-on-one -on -one debrief um it I mean, length of time is important, but even more is the intentional facilitation. Mm. And there's not a lot of research on faculty and staff developing their intercultural competence. But we know from the research on students that 
for example, in study abroad, time is not as important as the intentional facilitation. Obviously, it's not going to happen in a day, but uh, a three-week, one-month study abroad program can have a significant impact on someone's intercultural learning if it's being intentionally facilitated by a skilled facilitator. And so I am guessing that the same thing goes, and based on my experience, the same thing pr probably goes for faculty and staff. You could be abroad, you could live in Japan for three years and might it might not develop your intercultural competence more because mm. you're not intentionally maybe reflecting on making meaning and thinking of how you will use those new skills, that new learning. An experience abroad could just reinforce the stereotypes that you have, negative or positive. Right. And so that's why I think it's really important um, to do more in-depth programs with faculty and staff that are helping them think very intentionally about their intercultural learning and development. So it's a quality, not quantity thing. And and then something else that you said that was um, meaningful to me. So you said that, let me get you, let me see if I got you correctly, that you do the IDI when participants begin. And then yes, again, in this three month program. Okay. Mm -hmm. So then do you tailor, is it possible to tailor to the differences within the group? Or do you find that we can give everybody the same treatment and depending on where you begin might have an impact on where mm -hmm. you end? I I'm just curious about that. Yeah. And I get this question from faculty a lot too. Like I have a group of students and if people are at different developmental levels, and this is one of the things I looked at in my dissertation research as well, because I was looking at the process of facilitating intercultural learning during study abroad. And when you have a group of learners that are at different places developmentally, um, you have to take into account kind of the average of that group as well as individuals. You tailor the full group experience to the average, but then you take in mind the outliers, yeah. for lack mm -hmm. of a better word, um, and you might just respond a little differently to their comment. Or you might um, push people that are further along the continuum by asking them if they have any insights um, on something that was said. Just as an example, I, I've worked with this uh, two professors. They have a intercultural living and learning community for first year students. And I come in uh, like the second weekend and we do a full day intercultural workshop with the students. So these students uh, all take the IDI and they get a one-on-one -on -one debrief with me. And the professors and I sit down and look through the students' results and say, okay, so what's the average? How is that going to impact one, how I facilitate my workshop and two, how you two teach your courses throughout the semester. And then who are the students that might uh, need different kinds of attention? They fall outside of, you know, the bell curve of the average of this group. And so last year, for example, um, the, the students pretty much all fell in a pretty similar area on the developmental continuum, but one student was quite a bit higher. He was also quite shy um, and quiet. Um, and so we 
at the end of the semester noticed he was the only one who didn't make a significant movement on the continuum. And we talked about why that might be. And it was likely because the teaching was much more to the, the average and there wasn't an intended effort to continuously push him further through, um, you know, more individualized ways like feedback on papers mm -hmm. or one-on-one uh, -on -one conversations. And part of that was because he was shy and quiet. And um, so that didn't really jump out to the professors that he needed to be pushed a little bit more or could be. So there are ways, I think, to um, respond in a more individualized way to people who are at different places on the continuum. But it's very challenging. In, in my own program, I realize um, I have to think about that when, a, when someone responds to something, think about what's going to be developmentally most appropriate for this individual, but also usually the group is hearing a response and so have to think about the group as well. But oftentimes, you know, just having a group where people are, are at different developmental places, that in and its, of itself creates a real rich conversation that can help people move along the continuum. Yeah. So, so remember earlier I was talking about how there's this concept that the global perspective is a function of the group, right? So it's, it's this combination and, and recombination of different parts of the perspectives of, of many, as we try to come to some kind of almost consensus sort of holistic perspective of whatever mm -hmm. that object of analysis is. And so what I hear you saying, which to me is really breaking things open for me in a very helpful way, is thinking about where would probably be that set point for this group, right? They're going to be outliers, but mm -hmm. any discussion that we have with this group, we're probably going to end up at around this spot space on the developmental continuum because you're going to be bringing these different perspectives to bear in this way. And so it, it kind of makes me feel less overwhelmed by the idea that I'm going to give some kind of pre-survey, right, to all these students. And then I have to cater to all of these particular needs Actually, I could be thinking about how can I move the group as a whole, like almost like an orchestra leader, right? Right, right. And that that group that I mentioned at at that school, like I said, I've done it for three years in a row. And the first two years, their developmental score, the average was in a certain place on the continuum. The third year, it was a little bit higher. It was in the next orientation along that intercultural development continuum. And so I, I changed up the curriculum a bit. I put in different activities that I thought would push them a bit because one of the things about the intercultural development continuum is depending on where someone is along the continuum, you're really just trying to move them into the next orientation. It's not about jumping from not interculturally competent at all to, okay, I can, you know, solve all these world problems and bridge intercultural competencies. It's about moving into the next, the next orientation. So for me, that's really, really helpful because it helps me pinpoint what to focus on. Yeah. And so for that group last year, I knew that the activities from the 
previous year, a lot of them would just maintain the status quo. And I wanted to do different activities that would really push their thinking um, in different ways based on where they were starting as a group developmentally, and then take into account sort of the different people that might have um, sort of unique needs developmentally speaking. I am so glad that you just said that because once again, that's confirming the findings that we had in that we've had throughout our student learning assessment experience at FIU. So in again in my dissertation, we have this rubric for global awareness and perspective, how we define those two particular outcomes. And the rubric for judging any kind of performance assessment in which students are tasked with um, demonstrating their global awareness or global perspective is based on the underlying theoretical framework of Bloom's taxonomy, right? Because analyzing and addressing, so solution-making, evaluating, analysis, et cetera. And what we found consistently is that a global learning course can move a student one more step up, mm-hmm. right? So from knowledge to perhaps application, from application to analysis, but you've got to really, at the most in a semester, that's what we can, that's what we can, how we can move our students. And it's very cool, the idea that I'm going to be thinking about the group How am I going, what are the group processes? Because we know that no individual can progress outside of the context of the group, right? We've already established in our conversation together that it's by virtue of engaging with others. It's that inter space that we get to know more about others and ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. So we have to think about how are we going to move the group on this spectrum? So you were talking about that outlier student the one who was shy, but who was kind of more advanced on um, Bennett's spectrum, right? Mm -hmm. So can you be intercultural enough? I mean, can there just be a place where like, I'm at the top of the spectrum, I can't move any higher, but I could maybe work on in terms of my, my perspective and my mindfulness, my consciousness, but I could work on my specific skill sets around Mm -hmm. exerting my mindfulness, like that particular student in that course may have actually grown a ton by overcoming some shyness in maybe being more of a leader, like, right? Like a dialogic leader or the person who's there to kind of give that outlier perspective, which can take the whole group to a Mm -hmm. different place of, of consciousness, that's chapter two in the book, <laughs> right? In my and book that, around diversity and how it works and how it doesn't work. And that particular student, you know, didn't progress along the intercultural continuum, but that doesn't mean they didn't get anything out of right, the course right. or the program. Like they, they very likely learned um, other important things. As far as the intercultural development continuum goes, I mean, it it is this it looks like a linear progression and it looks like there's a start point and an end point, but uh, there's really no end point to intercultural development. Once you're in adaptation, it's like, and that is considered the furthest along in the intercultural mindsets on the intercultural development inventory and continuum. But once you're there, 
you just have new challenges. There are strengths mm. and challenges to every orientation and new things to focus on and new ways to grow. Um, it's not like you get to this point where you're like, Whew, I am interculturally competent. I can easily apply these skills in all situations and done. I can just sit back and relax now. Mm -hmm. um, it, and an interesting thing is um, the, the further along the continuum someone gets, oftentimes it's like they become more aware of how little they know. The further along someone is, the oftentimes they're like, well, I'm really surprised that I, I am in adaptation on this continuum because I feel like there's so much about cultures that I don't know. And I'm continuously seeing, you know, where it's like, yeah, there are a ton of cultures. The goal is not to know all things about all cultures and immediately be able to adapt. It's really about, again, developing the complexity with which you experience cultural difference and then having sort of a repertoire of transferable skills that you can try to apply, but they're not, it's not going to come as easily to you in all situations to apply those skills. I go to Spain, for example, my spouse is from there. I've been going back and forth there for 20 years. I can easily fall into adapting without thinking about it very much. Japan, it, that would be a lot harder for me to apply those skills there. And these skills aren't just applicable in different countries, different national cultures or ethnicities, but I just reposted a blog post from a few years ago about how oftentimes um, when our intercultural skills are needed most is when we don't even realize that it's an opportunity for intercultural skills, mm. like going to engage with family over the holidays. Um, I might go to Senegal and think, okay, different culture. I need to keep an open mind. I really need to get curious and try to understand where people are coming from. But likely I'm not going into that Thanksgiving uh, meal with Uncle Bob, who always spouts these uh, political tirades that I don't agree with, thinking, all right, open mind. I need to get curious and really try to understand where Uncle Bob is coming from if I want to, uh, you know, have a have a appropriate and effective conversation with him uh, and those are the the places where intercultural competence can really serve us but we oftentimes don't even really think about that which is why to, to my mind you know any faculty member in any field could find a way to weave in um, at least some attention to interculturalism into their course because um, maybe we're on multidisciplinary research teams. Maybe we're um, working in the profession, in the field as doctors or as engineers, or um, maybe we are engaging in community service. Interculturalism is applicable to any situation in which different people are coming together to work on something yeah. together. It does feel, Tara, like, don't we know enough already? Like, Aren't we at the point where we're so advanced on our knowledge of how people grow and develop interculturally? Should we be working on something else? Because I, I, I know that you, you recently attended a really interesting two-day intercultural learning leadership retreat that was organized by Purdue. And at this meeting, 
a lot of people that I know are there, like people that are the leaders in the field of intercultural learning, intercultural competence, intercultural communication. Like what were the big takeaways in terms of how we can deploy this knowledge? Yeah, this was a real informal, organic thing. Purdue is um, thinking about the future of professional development in the intercultural sector, especially after something called the Summer Institute for Intercultural Communication that has been going on for 30 years, um, seems to be perhaps disappearing. It Mm. did not occur this past summer for the very first time uh, in, I think, over 30 years. And so... Purdue wanted to bring together a group of leaders in the intercultural area and similar areas within higher education to really just have a conversation. So this was not a training or anything. This was a two-day conversation about where do we want to see professional development around intercultural learning go in higher education? Um, What could we be doing? Um, And I wrote a blog post about the things that really stood out to me, but one was around depth. Uh, We have a lot of conferences where you can go and you can learn about these things at a certain level, you know, an hour, an hour and 15 minutes in different sessions. It's great for awareness, but when it comes to intercultural learning, especially since we've identified um, the importance of educators own intercultural development, that requires depth, that requires more time and energy invested in one area. Um, And so we really need to think about how we can offer ways for educators to develop their own intercultural competence at the same time that they're thinking about how to do this work with students. Um, And it really needs to go beyond cognitive. It's not just about gaining a certain set of knowledge. It's really an affective and behavioral and practice thing Mm -hmm. as well. And that's why I have, for example, a three month long program where we're working on all of these things at the same time and providing support and coaching and feedback along the way. So the, the importance of depth really stood out to me. Also, we talked a lot about the intersections, but also the differences between intercultural work, social justice work, mm-hmm. diversity, equity, inclusion, then there's you know global learning, all of these areas that in many ways are trying to achieve something similar, are going about it in different ways, but are also unique in certain very important ways. And so We didn't come up with any answers necessarily in these two days, but it was more just a recognition of the importance of continuing the dialogue Mm -hmm. around the intersections of these different um, approaches uh, approaches and focuses um, in what we're doing. And the third was uh, that we need to not just focus on intercultural learning and development at the individual level, but also higher up at like the team, organizational, um, structural, and systemic levels. Mm. To me, the inter- the individual intercultural development is a precursor to doing that at a higher institutional systemic level, but we can't just stop at the individual. We need to think about these um, 
at a institutional and systemic level as well. I see all the time that universities go about their intercultural initiatives, internationalization in a way that it just, it's so obvious to me that they are at a certain place on the intercultural development <laughs> continuum yeah. and the initiatives that they're taking represent that place. And that's going to be great, as we talked about before, to develop someone who is in a different orientation into that orientation on the continuum. But a lot of times the institutional approach represents where most people at that institution fall in their own intercultural development. And so a lot of our initiatives are actually maintaining the status quo rather than pushing people's intercultural development um, into a new space. You just pushed my understanding of internationalization into a new space. Yes, because you were talking about the kind of the average, right? Like that the group comes, that there's a certain zeitgeist. Mm -hmm. And we talk all the time in telling the story of how we developed our university-wide global learning initiative. We spent a year and a half asking people over and over and over what is international? What is global about FIU? And we kind of got to that zeitgeist. It was like, this was where we were at as an institution. We were ready to go this big and this bold and this deep and in this way around global learning. Other institutions are not at that space. And so the reasonable and rational leadership focus should be, let's move our institution one more step up the rung, mm -hmm. right? Like we, we're not going to go from being at the, the beginning stages of our internationalization development to all the way to adaptation, right? Like being able mm -hmm. to create this. What can we do as an institution to go just one more step along the developmental continuum? So I'm not going to say anything more about that. I think we should write about it, <laughs> frankly. Yeah. And I think it's important too for institutions make sure they're they're varying their offerings and approach to um, attend to the developmental needs of learners at different places. Oftentimes we have one kind of approach. Um, just I'll just give the example of things that celebrate a specific culture, like Chinese culture night. Come and eat the foods of China and hear the music and see the dance and all of that. It's celebrating certain aspects of culture, oftentimes more the visible aspects of culture. But oftentimes the implicit assumption is that, well, deep down we're all similar. And that's the important message. That represents a minimization orientation on the intercultural development continuum. That is going to be very helpful for people who are at what's called a polarization orientation, who feel kind of threatened by cultural difference, who need to have experience with cultural differences in a way that is non-threatening. Um, and so an approach like that is necessary for some people. But for people who are already in minimization, who are kind of assuming that most people experience the world in a way that's similar to them. And so I'll just treat you as I want to be treated. Implicit assumption there is you want to be treated like I want to be treated. For those people, that kind of activity is not going to push their development. It might help them learn something about Chinese culture. And for the Chinese students, it might be a great way for them to celebrate and share about their own culture. So there are definite positives to it. 
But for people who are in minimization, which is about 66% of people who have ever taken the intercultural development inventory, that's not going to push them further along the continuum. And so there is a place for that type of experience at our institutions, but there are also there's also a need typically for other types of approaches that are going to push people from minimization into acceptance, which are really having those harder conversations, mm-hmm. difficult dialogues, and digging deeper into cultural values um, and deepening our own awareness around our own um, cultural values and beliefs and assumptions. So it's not just about like, okay, our university's here, we're going to take this approach, but making sure that we are offering things that will attend to different developmental places, but especially pushing our institution from where we are to the next place on the developmental continuum. Tara, I, I really hope that our listeners are feeling kind of kind of pushed along as well in terms of the interconnectedness between the concepts of intercultural learning, global learning, and as we've moved in our dialogue, a place that I never thought we would go to, even <laughs> internationalization leadership. Really, thank you for this conversation today. I, I um, enjoyed the heck out of it. Good, you're good. Me too. Yeah, I think uh, it's really important to be having these types of conversations and not just throwing these words around uh, glibly, but digging into them and the relationship between um, these different concepts that we're all using. Fantastic. And we're going to have a ton of show notes from from our conversation today. We were talking about all sorts of things. So uh, I, our listeners should make sure that they develop, that they visit that our webpage because there's going to be a treasury of cool stuff. Thanks great. a bunch, Tara. Have a great day. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Making Global Learning Universal. This podcast is brought to you by FIU's Office of Global Learning Initiatives, Media Technology Services, and our Disability Resource Center. You can find all our episodes, show notes, transcripts, and discussion guides on our webpage, globallearningpodcast.fiu.com. And if this episode was meaningful to you, please share it with colleagues, friends, and students. You can even give it a rating on iTunes. Thanks again for tuning in and for all you do to make global learning universal.